This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. Counting down to the big movie awards, the Oscars, the BAFTAs and the rest, the pressure is on to keep up beforehand. You can't complain about any flagrant injustices on the night until you've seen all the competition, after all. But this year, that's proved trickier than previously. You can blame the pandemic for closing so many cinemas around the world, forcing the studios to show their product online. Mind you, they were starting to do that anyway. Tonight is a chance for us to reflect. You mean no one else is coming? Well, this is all to a happen start. <laughs> Streaming services were already becoming the outlet of choice and this year simply sped up the process. And there are now so many of them. Looking down the list of winners at the recent Golden Globes, half of them had only been shown on Netflix, Disney+, Amazon Prime and the rest. Good morning, Miss Peterson. I'm sorry to disturb you so early. The court has ruled that you require assistance in taking care of yourself. (laughs) I'm fine. The winner of the Best Actress in a Comedy or Musical, for instance, was one of these. Rosamund Pike in a poison pen letter to the American dream called I Care A Lot, showing on Amazon. It's Rosamund's second scarily horrible character in an American movie. She played the equally sociopathic lead in Gone Girl a few years ago. I'm afraid it's not up to you to decide. The court has appointed me to be your legal guardian. What? You have to come with me. And remember, I'm here to help. Maybe the idea is that women will never achieve full equality if they only play heroines and wonder women. They have to play evil too, like Marla Grayson, who preys on vulnerable older people using the law to take over their lives. She forces them into the home, auctions off their house, and uses the proceeds to pay herself. Because caring is my job. I will grab your dick and balls. And I will rip and clean off. I have to say, it's a bit of a stretch to call I Care A Lot either a comedy or a musical. Having established how awful Marla is, Rosamond undeniably pulls that off with bells on. There's a twist when she picks the wrong victim. I don't lose. I won't lose. I'm never letting you go. Oh, you're in trouble now. Diane Weist isn't quite as helpless as she looks and she has friends in shady places. Suddenly, Marla finds herself up against the Russian mafia, led by that least likely of Russian mafiosi, Peter Dinklage. Hello, Marla Grayson. I don't like you. You only just met me. By now, I Care A Lot is starting to get messy. Not enjoyably Coen Brothers messy, just all over the place messy with a nasty taste to it. In fact, I'm starting to regret taking out a subscription to Amazon Prime to see it. No reflection on Rosamund Pike, who's never less than committed to anything she's in. Even this. There's two types of people in this world. Predators and prey. In fact, if there was an award for best performance in worst film, I'd totally support Roz for it. But my Amazon subscription wasn't a total waste of money. It allowed me to see something rather better. This ain't about civil rights. They ain't giving black people what they really want. What's that? 
power. Black power. Like the sound of that. <sighs> One Night in Miami is director Regina King's acclaimed adaptation of a hit play. Meanwhile at the cinema is another slice of black American history, Judas and the Black Messiah, and first New Zealand film Cousin shows the importance of luck in a production. Where are you from, dear? I'm from the Mercy Home for Desolate Children. What about your people? They didn't want to keep me. The number of things that could have gone wrong on the film Cousins was daunting. It was based on an acclaimed and beloved book by Patricia Grace, and great writing is often the hardest to translate to the screen. It had tried and failed to make it to the big screen for decades, proving too much even for such luminaries as Merita Meter and Gaylene Preston. And it told the story of three women parted for almost the entire film. Leaving aside the cinematic problem of a story about three separated Maori women, the film defied the usual strategy. Cousins doesn't have a director. It has two who picked up the gigs almost accidentally. Ainsley Gardner is normally a producer, one of our best, in fact, with Boy, Fantail, The Breaker Upperers, She Shears and others on her stellar CV. Mata. Cousin Makareta. You remember? When we were young. And Briar Grace Smith is one of our best writers, the secret weapon behind the wonderful Waru, I gather. Not only did she accept co-directing duties on Cousins, but when they struggled to find someone to play the pivotal role of Makareta, she put her hand up for that too. What happened to you, Mata? Now, what I'm saying is that every one of these decisions could have gone terribly wrong. Goodness knows they have in the past. But every choice turned out to be the right one, just as every cast member turned out to be perfect. Cousins proved such a charmed production, it became the best New Zealand film I've seen since... Well, I was going to say Whale Rider, but I liked it more than that. I'd like to introduce one of our honour students, Makarita Pairama. It's Pairama. Makareta Pairama. It's a potentially challenging story for non-Maori audiences. The basic wrong at its heart is laid out without explanation. Young Mata is taken from her Maori mother by her English father and then dumped in an orphanage. Back then, there was a law. There was nothing anyone could do. What's the matter? There you are. You're coming with me today. Why is she good to go? But briefly, there is respite. Mata's maternal grandmother arranges for her to visit the family Mirai for a short period. And there she meets two cousins. First, Missy, constantly at odds with the family over her many chores, but fearless. You knew, didn't you? Go, go. What's the matter? Scared or something? 
No chores are required of Makareta, the gorgeous Maori princess who's being carefully saved for greater things. But despite their differences and Mata's worrying ignorance of her Maori family or language, the three become close until suddenly the visit ends. There's to be no contact with the Maori family. I am her legal guardian. I often think of my cousin. But she didn't have anyone. She had us. Mata is cruelly reclaimed by her legal guardian and all connection with her family ends. Essentially, Mata is sold into indentured servitude and spends the rest of the film struggling to find some sort of place in the world. They didn't know where she went, cousin. They knew. They just wouldn't tell us. Yellow, white, blue. So, so beautiful. We're going to get you back, Mata. I promise. Meanwhile, her two cousins have their own struggles, even as they search for Mata. Makareta rebels against her family's expectations and reinvents herself in the city. And Hardcase Missy becomes the guardian of the land and the heart of the film. Rachel House in another beautiful performance. He's not scary, just ugly like you. Your place is here on this land, girl. You better run, you little baby. But Cousins boasts an entire cast to treasure, particularly the nine actors who play the three lead characters as children, young adults and older versions. The transitions are almost invisible and the extraordinary Tanya Heke, especially as the older Mata, will break your heart. The smartest thing about Cousins is that it's told from the point of view of Mata. The audience learns as she does. <laughs> Wait a minute. your name me. I know your people. Cousins takes us on the three women's extraordinary journeys until, like all great stories, we find our way home. Well, this film made it home, and co-directors Ainsley Gardner and Briar Grace Smith made it look effortless. But as the old country music saying goes, ain't it easy when you know how. I tried to find you, Mutter. We all did. After a century of being mostly overlooked by the Hollywood movie industry, black filmmakers are making their mark and making films about black American history. And right now, black history has meant a very specific moment in time, the late 1960s. Black power! Black power! Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. That's us. Stallworth Brothers. We're on a roll, baby. America first. America first. Selma 1965 and Martin Luther King. The trial of the Chicago 7 and Bobby Seale. The Five Bloods in Vietnam. Black Klansmen. And now, the birth of the Black Panthers and the charismatic Fred Hampton. Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois Black Panther Party. The story of Judas and the Black Messiah seems the most melodramatic of all of them, except it turns out to be mostly true. Committed Marxist Hampton was one of the leaders of the Black Panthers movement, and the racist FBI chief J. Edgar Hoover was convinced they were a lethal threat to the United States. 
The Black Panthers are the single greatest threat to our national security. Our counterintelligence program must prevent the rise of a black messiah. So the FBI did what they usually did with criminal organisations, put an informer in. And don't be too fussy where you find them. One of the potential undercover agents was a car thief and con man called Bill O'Neill. You're looking at 18 months for the stolen car, five years for impersonating a federal officer, or you can go home. What do you want? Get close to Hampton. Bill O'Neill is played by Lakeith Stanfield, who's one hit movie away from stardom after some great performances in Get Out, Sorry to Bother You and Knives Out. Sorry, this isn't that movie. While in many ways Judas and the Black Messiah is about Stanfield's character, all the attention is going to English actor Daniel Kaluuya as Fred Hampton. I believe I'm going to die half the people. I'm going to die for the people because I live for the people. Fred is young, angry and a brilliant speaker. Rhetoric is his thing, not so much a black messiah as a black Winston Churchill. In 1968, the injustices facing black America can't be ignored and the worst place north of the Bible Belt is Chicago, Illinois. America's on fire right now. Until that fire is extinguished, nothing else means a damn thing. The trial of the Chicago 7 pointed out how temporarily tough it could be for middle-class white men protesting against an unpopular war. Now imagine what it's like for a permanent underclass at war with a corrupt police force working for a corrupt government. You can murder a liberator, but you can't murder a liberation. You can murder a revolutionary, but you can't murder a revolution. The first thing Bill O'Neill finds out when he joins the Illinois Black Panthers is that these guys are hardly what he's been sold. Far from bomb-throwing anarchists, Hampton and the Panthers seem to spend a lot of time feeding the hungry and looking after children. Imagine what we could accomplish together. We can heal this whole city. You ain't tell me it was going to be like this. These ain't no terrors. Well, of course they do, scoff O'Neill's handlers. That's how they win people over. The FBI is more worried when Hampton's Black Panthers start to reach out to the other gangs in Chicago, the Puerto Ricans and the poor white groups. The Black Panthers are forming a rainbow coalition of oppressed brothers and sisters of every colour. Neutralise him by any means necessary. O'Neill finds himself in a precarious position between two parties. There are the angry white cops fed on the politics of Hoover and President Nixon, and there's the angry black community rallying behind Fred Hampton, who the FBI are turning into that very black messiah they were scared of. We got a rat, man. Does anybody else know about me? No one knows your identity. Are you sure? We educate, we nurture, we feed, and we lobby. Perhaps we're here for more than just war with these bodies. 
Bill O'Neill's handler is the ambiguous figure of Roy Mitchell, played by Jesse Plemons. Is he ruthlessly manipulating his informer, or is he, in fact, O'Neill's only friend? It's a one-sided contest, and there are no prizes for guessing how unscrupulously the forces of so-called law and order behave before the inevitable end. I just want you all to know um, you can thank the Black Panther Party for the increased police presence in your neighbourhood of glorious group of cop killers. Daniel Kaluuya won the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor, though I'm not sure who he was supporting. He pretty much pushes everyone else off the screen. Judas and the Black Messiah tells an unfamiliar story very well. It ends badly, but what were you expecting? It ended badly for the original Messiah and Judas, you may remember. Anywhere there's people, there's power. If you're telling a real-life story of what happened, a film's as good a way to do it as any. But if you want to know what the people involved were like, then often a play's the thing. In the case of the play that forms the basis of the film One Night in Miami, it's the work of American playwright Kemp Powers, who imagined a get-together of four of the most famous Americans in 1964. Ready for tonight? I'm as ready as a person can be. After the fight, we're all coming back here for the champ's victory party. Don't be late. Ken Powers has already made a name for himself this year. He co-wrote the brilliant Pixar animated film Soul. But he wrote One Night in Miami nearly ten years ago and based it on a real-life incident. On February the 25th, 1964, the night that boxer Cassius Clay, soon to be Muhammad Ali, beat Sonny Liston to become heavyweight champion of the world, he got together at a hotel with his three best friends. Minister Malcolm X. Good news, the chariot is coming. You know I'm the greatest. That's right. Jim Brown takes the ball. Your record is going to stand the test of time. How's everybody feeling tonight? All together, yeah. Cassius Clay and singer Sam Cooke were already world-famous celebrities, while footballer Jim Brown was then the most successful athlete in America. Muslim preacher Malcolm X was just making his name as a fiery civil rights leader. I was made in America, land of the free, home of the brave. This movement that we are in is called a struggle because we are fighting for our lives. Those were the basic facts behind One Night in Miami, but writer Kemp Powers then goes on to allow his four characters to discuss life, the universe and everything, in particular the obligations of successful black stars in still mostly segregated America. You all are a bright and shining future. You need to understand what is at stake here. Everything's not so black and white like you make it out to be. Sam Cooke was probably the most financially successful of the four. He'd had a string of major crossover hits, many of which he'd written himself. But despite his stardom, he's still at the mercy of racial politics when it comes to where he can perform and what sort of material he can sing. You know I know what's going on out there, right? Listen, listen. Brothers and sisters, listen, listen, listen.
Jim Brown seemingly has it easier. There is, after all, nothing complicated about being a football hero. If you're a winner, everyone loves you. But just because they want your autograph doesn't mean they'll let you into their homes. No wonder he leapt at the opportunity to go to Hollywood to make westerns. The goal is for us to really be free. We want the world. But we're safe to be ourselves. Cassius Clay is the joker of the pack who revels in winding up his audience. His catchphrase was, I am the greatest, even before he actually became the greatest. But he's also determined to use his fame for something, and that night he's about to make an important decision. The entire city of Miami is celebrating. I'm the new heavyweight champion of the world, and I don't even have a scratch on my face. Oh, my goodness. Cash. Cash. Why am I so pretty? <laughs> Clay's mentor is Malcolm X, whose serious demeanour and apparently violent rhetoric makes him a scary figure to white America. The FBI are constantly on his tail. But the Malcolm X on display in One Night in Miami is rather different. A man with a family and a vision for their future. Well, I met with a writer in New York a few weeks back. There were two guys following us through the airport. I swear it was the same two. I thought you didn't trust writers. Oh. This one was a brother, and well, this meeting was important. I figure I better start getting my life story documented in my own words while I can. One Night in Miami looks like the sort of thing Tom Stoppard used to put together, a collection of fascinating celebrities in a what-if scenario. But its real-life origins and the crucial moment in black American history where it's set lifts it above the gimmicky. We have to be there for each other. Brothers could move mountains without lifting a finger. The film earned actor-turned-director Regina King a nomination at the Golden Globes as well as a place at the Venice Film Festival. And the moment where Leslie Odom Jr. as Sam Cooke sings A Change Is Gonna Come is worth the price of admission on its own. It's been a long I'm coming, but I know change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. Some people may dismiss One Night in Miami, which is only viewable on Amazon Prime, I'm afraid, as a filmed play. But when the play is as strong as this and the filming is good, both sensitive and punchy, then that argument is knocked out in the first round. The heartbreaking part was what was to happen after 1965. But that's another story for another film. And that brings this story to a close. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week.